Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian man who lived and died in the Second World War. He was hung by the Nazis after time in a German prison, away from his family, away from his fiancée, in a world opposed to God. A man who knew about suffering, but a man who also knew about optimism. During his time in prison, he wrote these words that you can follow along with me on the front of your handout. The essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present, but it is a source of inspiration, of vitality and hope where others have resigned. It enables a man to hold his head high, to claim the future for himself and not abandon it to his enemy. That is the point at which I want to arrive at the end of our talk today. And the route to get there will be through chapters 5 to 7. How do we remain optimistic and not abandon our hope to our enemy? How do we resist temptation to give up the race of faith when we are persecuted? When sin has beaten us down time after time after time, how do we keep going where it looks like there's nothing left to do but throw in the towel? How do you remain as one who is certain of your eternal future with Christ? That must be a question for the Israelites by now. They were a people who had been born into slavery, lived through the slaughtering of their children, having every hope of freedom snuffed out. They must be starting to wonder if they are really God's people who will go to his promised land, or is this bondage and slavery that they see in front of them all that there really is to their life? Particularly when last week ended with such hope and celebration. Look back at chapter 4, verse 31. It says, And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. As we reach chapter 5, we reach it with a sense of expectation. There's been 400 years in slavery, and now God has heard their cries. He has sent his servant Moses to go and tell Pharaoh... To command, uh, to command Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. They have been given hope once again. If you've, mis- if you've missed um, the past couple of weeks, then this comment from Moody uh, summarises Moses quite nicely. He spent 40 years thinking that he was somebody, 40 years learning that he was a nobody, and then 40 years learning that God uses somebody when they know that they are a nobody. Moses is the one who God has chosen to take his nation out of oppression and into the land that he has prepared for them. But as we reach chapter 5 this morning, we see that things are about to get a lot worse before they get any better. And we'll start by looking at this under the title of a worldly perspective. As Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him to release his people, it's fair to say that things don't really go according to plan, at least not to the plan of the Israelites. In fact, they couldn't really go much worse. As Moses asks Pharaoh to let his people go, the answer comes back in verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now this isn't in the sense of saying, look guys, I feel, I feel a bit uncomfortable about this. Uh, maybe we could go to Cream or now Costa and do a Christianity Explore course and find out who this God is. Instead, he is saying, as far as I'm concerned, 
your God is irrelevant to this situation. I don't see any proof of him. I am king here. Pharaoh is standing in direct opposition to God and his plan. You might remember that God's work was to give the people a land, a people and a blessing. Pharaoh's work is to keep them in a foreign land, to suppress their number and to treat them so harshly that they will feel under the curse of God. Whether he realises it or not, he is setting himself up against Yahweh. And so the Israelites' expectation and excitement is shattered as a response from Pharaoh is heard. I will not let Israel go. And verses 7 to 8 hold the punishment for such an outrageous request. Pharaoh tells his officials, you are no longer to to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Now, I decided not to read the online PDF about ancient brick-making processes, um, but what I did find out is that straw makes the process of making bricks uh, more efficient by speeding up the drying process so it might be fired more quickly. So, to demand the same amount of bricks, but to take away the straw, is something like taking away all lectures, but expecting the same results on the same exam date. It's counterproductive, it's unrealistic, and it's unfair. It's hard work made even harder. Beatings for missing crazy targets, and then accusations of laziness when these targets aren't met. These are an oppressed people trying to reach an impossible standard set by the world around them, which is opposed to God. It's easy to see why they go back to Moses in verse 21 and say, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. They say, up until now, things have been hard, but at least we've never given Pharaoh a reason to hate us. But now you have made us detestable to him. Now you have given him a reason to kill us. It's a bit of a chain reaction, really. Uh, The Israelites' anger at Moses then makes Moses angry with God. Look down with me at verse 23. Moses runs back to Yahweh and relays the problem. He says that you have not rescued your people at all. You have only brought them trouble. And this is where we really need to press pause on the story. Maybe you've noticed that the whole of chapter 5 is written from a worldly perspective. It's a story about what is happening on the ground. And from this perspective, it looks like it's about time to give up on trusting God. They have heard about all these wonderful promises, about deliverance from slavery, about a land flowing with milk and honey. But right now, perhaps it's just best to keep their heads down as God's people and just obey Pharaoh as king. At this point in time, being God's people looks about the worst idea they can come up with. It only gets them into trouble. This is the kind of time where you might have been rejected by another job, but this time, it's because you're a Christian. Or maybe you go and pick up that essay mark that you were expecting at first, but you find a 2-2 and a comment about the use of Christian theology letting you down. It could be the time where you've waited patiently and prayed to God for a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend, but still, nothing is happening. 
Maybe you're fed up of waiting for God to work on his promises. You know that he has promised to make you holy, but all you know is your sin. You know that he has promised one day to take you to heaven. But as you look at the world around you, you only see things getting worse and worse, further away from heaven. In those times, isn't it best just to keep your head down as a Christian? Mix in with the world. Just don't mention the fact you're a Christian in the interview. Maybe just go with the worldly view in the essay. Maybe just find that non-Christian relationship that you want so badly. That's really what the Israelites want in verse 21. They don't want anything more to do with Moses or his message from God. They say, just leave us to live our own life our own way. But chapter 6 offers something quite different. It offers a heavenly perspective on what is going on. It is as if Moses is kind of picked up and can look at the situation from God's view. And then he is to pass that view onto the Israelites. Look down with me at verses 6 to 8. In their oppression and suffering, God speaks to his people. And he says this, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my own. I will be your God. I will bring you out to the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. He gives them seven promises and two statements. Seven promises about what he will do. And they're really just a repeat of what he has already said from the burning bush. God is repeating himself because Moses and the Israelites are so quick to forget. These promises are what is meant to keep them going through their suffering. And do you notice the statement that brackets uh, these promises? It is, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. If you were here last week, then you will know that this means, as surely as God is God, I will do this. Certain promises from God. There almost seems to be an element of of calm and control in chapter 6, compared to the mess and chaos of chapter 5. If you like, this is the moment when the voice of the Coast Guard comes through on the radio of a stranded ship, being battered and beaten by the waves, to say, hold on, we are coming to rescue you. What an encouragement this must have been for a people under such cruel oppression to hear the mighty promises of God and his rescue plan. At least that's what I thought at first. But then look down with me at verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. These people are so downtrodden, so oppressed, so beaten, that they cannot lift their heads to find the encouragement in these wonderful truths. It is as if they have abandoned their hope to their enemy. Look back at that quote on the front of your sheet. Bonhoeffer says that the essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present. But you see, Israel have done the opposite by taking account only of the present. These people have abandoned their hope. They have forgotten the promises that God gave them. So, Moses goes back to God in verse 10, and this is what Yahweh says. Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. 
I'm sure Moses, he couldn't believe his ears. And you've got to feel for the poor guy a little bit here. He must be thinking, didn't you see what just happened last time? Pharaoh didn't listen to me. Now the Israelites, they want nothing to do with me. Why on earth would you send me back to Pharaoh? Didn't you see what happened? What good can come of this? But what he needs to understand, what Israel needs to understand, what we need to understand, is that there is something much bigger going on here than just the rescue of Israel. As we have seen throughout the book so far, God is always, always, always in control. So, of course, we can know that he is in control now. Look down with me at chapter seven, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. The rescue of his people is so that they might know that Yahweh is the Lord their God. It's so that they might know that he is trustworthy, that he is mighty to save. This is the heavenly perspective of the mess that is happening. It is so that God might reveal himself to his people. And then a similar phrase comes again in chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, but this time in reference to the Egyptians. Uh, Do look down at this again with me. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israel out of it. In these two statements, God seems to be saying that actions speak louder than words. This was God's plan all along. In fact, in uh, chapter 4, God says to Moses that when you go to Pharaoh, he will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Things are going exactly according to plan. It is not even that God foreknew what would happen, but it is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God had ordained that his people will be in slavery. God has ordained that Pharaoh will not let his people go. That is the reality of the situation. That is the heavenly perspective. In their suffering, God is revealing himself to his people so that they might trust him. But simultaneously, he is revealing himself to the Egyptians so that they might know that he is the Lord Those who are proud and oppose God, like Pharaoh, will be brought low. Do you remember Pharaoh's question in 5, verse 2? Who is the Lord that I shall obey him? 7, verse 5, says that the uh, the Lord says, you will see exactly who I am. I am the one who will bring my people to my land through my work of my mighty and outstretched arm. In delivering his people powerfully from Egypt, God is making himself known. Pharaoh's hard heart is the means by which God will show his mighty deliverance of his people. The idea is that as God tells them what he is going to do, and then he does it, the next time they feel that they can't trust God, they can look back and remember that he is faithful. And we read this many, many times in the Old Testament 
prophets who remember the past days when God rescued his people to encourage them in their current crisis. As God's people today, we too are meant to dwell on what God has done. But the, the exodus from Egypt was only ever a picture of the greater rescue to come. The deliverance from the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh was pointing to the greater deliverance of the release of the grip of slavery to sin and death. And this takes us to our last heading of our perspective. You see, our situation is different to that of Israel. These are people who have not yet been rescued. They are still waiting. And to go back to the picture of the boat, waiting to be rescued, they're still on the boat. They're still waiting. It was only their offspring who would realise the full knowledge of God's faithfulness as they looked back to the, to the, uh, to the Exodus. And we are those offspring today because we are God's people. But we don't look back to the Exodus, which was only ever a shadow of the greater and truer deliverance from death, not through the servant Moses, but through the suffering servant king, Jesus Christ. He rescued us when we were even more helpless than Israel. He revealed himself to us through the deliverance from sin and death. And we see this throughout the the New Testament. That is the reason why the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. For example, he has not just told us how much he loves us, but he has shown us. I mean, where do you see the extent of God's love for you? It is, of course, on the cross. Romans 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the truth. That is what the Bible says. That is how God has revealed himself to us. So, when you feel like God doesn't love you, know that he does, because he has demonstrated his love and revealed himself through your deliverance. This is really important to grasp, because We are a people, like Israel, who can be really quick to rely on our own feelings. Just take those examples that I mentioned earlier, when you don't get the job because you're a Christian, or you only feel your sin and don't know your salvation. Those are the times that you must take account only of... um, Sorry, in those times, uh, you must not look um, only at the present and your feelings, but instead you must look back to Christ's love shown on the cross, and you must look forward to his promises. That is how you will hold on to your hope. To only look at your current situation will offer us no hope or assurance. You see, our perception of God's work is greatly limited. Our feelings are not a good gauge of our relationship with him. You must trust his word, which is external to yourself, It's constant. It's sure. We must look back to our deliverance. See how God has mightily saved us from that oppression. You must know his power and his might. Think back to when you first understood his grace. But then also look forwards. 
as God told Israel that he will bring them out, that he will free them, that he will redeem them, we too must look forward and stand on every promise of God's word. In particular, hold tight to the promise of Jesus in John 14. In fact, turn, turn to that now. Flip forward to John 14. And we'll start reading at verse 1. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may also be where I am. Isn't that wonderful news of assurance? Do you see that when we feel oppressed by a world that doesn't know God, or when we feel enslaved by sin, or when you feel that standing up for God just isn't worth it, We are to dwell on his promise because that is what will equip us to keep fighting, to keep standing. And that's all because you know that he is trustworthy because he has delivered you. He will come back because he has delivered us in the first place. Jesus Christ died for you to save you from sin and death. And so, as we close, I want to go back to where we started. The quote from Bonhoeffer. Do you now see that to look only at the present may not give us any hope, but our optimism will come from looking backwards to God revealing himself as he delivered us, and looking forward to his promises. The essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present, but is a source of inspiration, of vitality and hope where others have resigned. It enables a man to hold his head high to claim the future for himself and not abandon it to his enemy. There's a chance to uh, think through uh, that with the discussion questions on your sheet.